I tell you, Jesus is remarkable, amen? I, I'm just, as I'm going through this gospel study of Mark, just learning more and more about him, I hope you're catching half of what I'm getting because Jesus is blowing me away through this whole thing as Mark reveals him here. Uh, we're going to read the scripture this morning. Charles is going to come up and read for us, if you would. Good to have Charles in the house. They're staring. You can just jump it up there. There we go. The man has hops. There we go. All right. So, Charles, what's happened in your life lately? I knew you were going to ask that. Yeah, you know. See, you read my mind. So I was actually thinking a lot about last week's message and how the emphasis on humility, Jesus is just talking to us about that constantly. And so, Amen. yeah, I've really had to check myself. And I'm, not, I'm a little bit better than other people, but, you know, <laughs> there's that whole, yeah. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. But, uh, yeah, that really resonated, like, in the sense of conviction, so. Good deal. Yeah. And new job? Yeah, yeah. I've been working on a new job since the beginning of the year, so that's working out well. I'm great, grateful. great. Well, thank the Lord for that. Yeah. All right. Well, follow along as Charles reads for us from Mark chapter 9. So Mark nine forty-two. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if you're hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right, so hey, yeah, give Charles a hand. Let me ask you an honest question here. How many of you, as you're reading, are like, you're like, that's weird. Okay, go ahead and be honest. There's some bizarre stuff in that passage right there. Okay, good. Good for you being honest. The teens all had their hands up because they're more honest than y'all. Y'all were like, can I say the Bible's weird? I don't know if I can say that. Yes, you can because there's parts that are, that are extremely odd, and this is one of them. But hey, if we take our time, and we go through it, it'll make perfect sense in the end, as you'll, you'll see here. So let me, though, do this. Let me talk about the elephant in the room first. There was something that was really obvious there. Um, if you have a translation like King James, you will see that there were some verses that are there, and if you read like ESV or NIV or New American Standard, there were some, two verses that are not there. It skipped verse 42 and 44. It went 41, 43, 45, and you're like, what? What is that about? So let's talk about the elephant in the room. Just get that out of the way, and um, because it's really not an issue. There's, there's skeptics who will look at this and say, see, the Bible, we don't know if we have the whole Bible. The Bible's been changed over time, and let me just show you that that's actually, that that's actually not the case. Jesus promised in several passages, but in this one especially, heaven and earth will pass away, but read the rest with me, but my words will not pass away. Jesus teaches the preservation of the Word of God, and that the Word of God, will, we will have it today, 2,000 years later from when it was written, and even, you know, it's five, 6,000 years if you go all the way back to Genesis and, and the Pentateuch. So, 
Jesus' promise is true. Now, if Jesus' promise is wrong, then great. You can get up and walk out and say, hey, I'm done with Christianity. That's cool. But I, I will show you that that's not the case. Okay, let me... Now, now those of you who have cards, come up here and help me. Those of you who have cards, come up in here. Yep, come up here and just stand up here. And I'm going to show you... Um, let's see. So, all you all know, I hope... Actually, my daughter did not know Mary had a little lamb. Do you believe that? She's so neglected. I can't believe it. Anyway, Kaylin did not. She's like, what is this song here? This is, this is poetry here, okay? And I'm, I picked something that we're all familiar with, okay? So you guys look at your cards as I read it on the screen. And it's Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Okay? Elvis, did you have something different? Yes, mine says baby sheep. Had baby sheep. Now, anybody else have baby sheep on their card? No, you didn't, okay? And then also, picture this. Let's imagine every single one of you in the audience has a card, and it's written just like that because you copied it down. And, let's see, there's probably about 50 people in here. Let's just say every single one of you, your card represents 10,000 copies. 10,000 copies. So approximately now, 50,000 copies said um, little lamb, but Elvis, yours said baby, baby sheep. sheep. Now let me ask you a question. Is there a difference between a baby sheep and a little lamb? No. So if a scribe chose to, because of the area of the world he was in, thought that baby sheep translates better than little lamb, is that a mistake in the Bible? No. And if we really want to say, hey, that's wrong, and the rest of them are right. Look how many copies we have that say, here, it's right. Okay? Now, um, let me, let's, did someone else have, who else had something different on theirs? Samantha, what did yours say? Um, and it said, in every place instead of everywhere. So, and the, the original says, everywhere that Mary went. Hers says, every place that Mary went. Is that a problem? Does that, does that change the meaning? No, okay. Who else had some? Did all y'all have everywhere? Okay. Devin, what did you have? Uh, it says its wool was white as snow. Okay, so Devin says instead of its fleece, it says its wool was white as snow. Wool, fleece, is that the same thing? Yeah. Same thing. Does that create a problem? Okay, no. And so we have 50,000 copies, manuscripts that say fleece. We've got 1,000 manuscripts that say wool. Is that, that's not a problem, is it? Okay, who else had a difference? I think there's one more. Who else had a difference? Okay, over here. Maria had a little lamb. His says Maria had a little lamb. Okay, so he's writing a, his manuscript for Spanish-speaking people. Mary, Maria, is that a problem? No. Do you understand that 99.8% of the textual differences in the Bible is this kind of stuff? And this is way more than what actually is in the Bible. I just gave you four really wild examples, okay? Give them a hand. Y'all go back to your seat, okay? So sometimes scribes, for example, in this passage right here, it says that really bizarre verse, where the worm dieth not. It's actually in all the manuscripts that verse is in there. But some scribes somewhere added it two more times for emphasis. Don't know why. In fact... It, it was like a poetic device where you say something. You, it's like when you sing a song. You say a verse, chorus. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, right? And that's what he did with this. He's like, Jesus said this, add the chorus. The emphasis, worm dies not. Here's another verse by Jesus, add the chorus. Worm dies not. And then, so 
the part that he added twice was in the original, but he decided for some reason to add it twice. We don't know why, okay? And then sometimes scribes would do things like off to the side, say, well, this means this. And after copies and copies and copies, his notation that helps you understand the verse just became part of the text. But again, not an issue. There is not one contradiction in the Bible or what we call variance. Like those weren't contradictions, were they? There's not even one variance in the Bible that changes anything we believe about Jesus, about heaven, hell, or salvation. Okay, so when you read your Bible and all of a sudden it'll skip a verse or it'll add a verse or whatever, that's a difference in manuscripts, but not one of them changes anything we believe. But people will say, oh, the Bible's been changed and copied over time. Well, then here's another thing you want to do is just less than 60 years ago, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls copies and copies and copies of manuscripts that were thousands of years old okay we know how old they are they were dated and we compare them to what we have today no difference no difference so when people say it's changed over time don't even buy that stuff okay the the way here's the key the way that god has preserved his words is is, is he's given us hundreds of thousands of manuscripts so if you think Oh, something over here says something weird. Look at 50,000 other manuscripts that all say the right thing. And then that's how God preserved his word, by the, the sheer volume of the copies that we have. It's not like we have one copy of the original of the Bible somewhere in the Vatican. We've got thousands, tens of thousands of copies of manuscripts. So it, it's not even an issue for those who will be scholarly and those who will be honest in their search. So Jesus says something here. He says, forever causes one of these little ones. Now, last week, Jesus picked up a child, held up in his arms, and said, you need to be like him, okay? And now he's talking about children in general, still, but he's also broadening it to talk about anybody who's God's children. He's referring to even the disciples. You know, John was Jesus' best bud, right? His BFF, and when John wrote the first, he kept calling the believers in that church what? Little children. Little children. He was referring to everybody. Because if you're a child of God, you, God still looks at you like a toddler. And that's a good way to see yourself, by the way. Because when you think you know, you don't really. You know, and you still always need your daddy's help. And the interesting thing it says causes, the word here, because you can't cause someone to sin in the most literal sense. There's, cause can be also used in a broad sense that you contribute to. You know, someone caused you to do something, like someone made me mad. Well, didn't you have a choice being, mad, being made mad? Well, they contributed to being, being made mad. So the word caught has different, different definitions. The definition here is you contribute to someone else to sin, okay? Now, there's different ways that you can do that. Let's talk about that for just a second. How can you cause or contribute to someone else sinning? Number one is direct temptation. Let's say that you you know, are a smoker or you're into drugs and you encourage another believer to say, hey, try this, you know? And let me just tell you something. The worst thing you can ever do is just say, well, I'll try it just once. You can go to downtown Houston and see homeless men and women on every corner who are addicted to crack and heroin and all kinds of meth and they will tell you, I just told myself I was going to try it once and that once messed up their lives. Man, God forbid that anybody in this room would bring another child of God down by encouraging you to sin. Maybe you're tempted to tell a joke that's off color that would not please Jesus. You would be causing someone else to, to participate in that. Maybe you would be contributing to someone else to, in gossip 
or in anger or whatever it may be. We need to be super careful as brothers and sisters of Christ, as the family of God, that we're not contributing to someone else's sin. Jesus says that's pretty serious if you do. Another way you can contribute to someone else's sin is what Paul calls flaunting your liberty. Different Christians in different levels of growth have the liberty to do different things. For example, some of the Bible does not condemn drinking. It condemns what? Drunkenness. Okay? Now, some of you may feel the liberty to have a glass of wine with your spaghetti or whatever you want to do with that. And then there's some young believers that be like, oh my gosh, he's drinking. That's so confusing, you know, because I just came from an alcoholic background and I'm not drinking anymore. Now I'm confused because this person's drinking in front of me. And you can cause a younger believer to stumble because, oh yeah, we're Christians. We can drink. We can do whatever we want, you know. There's times to say, you know what, I'm not going to drink around someone else, even if I'm free to do that. There's certain music you may feel free to, to listen to, but maybe around someone else who's trying to get away from all that stuff. Might not want to listen to that, a younger believer. In this case, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there was a lot of Christians, young Christians, who were having a hard time eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. So people would go, like, sacrifice a goat to some demonic god, and then they'd sacrifice, they'd do the worship thing, but then they'd take the whole bunch of goats, they'd take it over to the butcher shop, and then they'd sell it. And they'd sell it for half price because it's already served its purpose, and so some Christians would come by and they'd buy that goat meat. And they'd be like, yeah, that's cool, you know. And, and a, a, someone who just got saved out of pagan practice, oh, I can't eat that goat. They just sacrificed that to Dagon. I, I can't do that. And they were like, and they shouldn't do that because it's so close to them. And Paul's like, meat's meat. Who cares? I don't care what you did with it before that. That's not, I'm not worshiping it, you know. But Paul said, if eating meat causes someone else to stumble, I will never eat meat again. And that's the mature response that we as Christians there's certain things we need to watch and do and then we're not talking about double standard we're talking about just being sensitive to the needs of others and not flaunting your liberty and being a good example a third way is by neglecting someone's needs you sin against them Paul talks about specifically in the marriage context that if a husband or a wife neglects one, uh, the other's sexual needs, you are causing them to be susceptible to temptation of Satan. And so we need to not neglect each other's needs. And it goes more than just the intimacy. It goes into emotional needs. It goes into meeting the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. And what about someone who becomes a brand new Christian? What are their needs? Man, they, they've got a lot of spiritual needs and we need not neglect them because if we do, we cause them to sin. And we've seen it way too many times where someone gets saved, they're all excited, but we really maybe don't take as good a care of them as we should. And next thing you know, they're back out of church and they're back out in the world and, and their life is back to confusion because we've neglected them. And this is not an exhaustive list. There's a lot of ways that you can cause someone else to sin. Are you being a good influence or a bad influence? When people are around you, they're like, man, you just feel the Spirit of God on their life. I, I just feel like they just motivate me to want to be more like Jesus. Or is it the other way around? It's like, well, I thought Christians were supposed to be different, but they don't really see that much different. And I don't even know if I could be different. I, I'm struggling with all these things, and I don't see them being any different than me. Maybe, maybe this Christianity thing is not for real, and it could become really quite a problem. And then Jesus shifts gears here. How many of you have ever heard of gangrene? You've heard of gangrene, okay? A lot of times people who suffer from diabetes will deal with this, 
all, but that's not the only one. There's all kinds of ways you can have it. A lot of times it'll start in the toes. And what happens is once gangrene gets in the body, if it is not treated right away, your option is amputation. They will amputate toes, foot. They try to amputate as little as possible, but enough to cut it off, literally, to where the gangrene can't spread to the rest of the body because guess what it'll do if it's spread to the rest of your body? Once it reaches your heart or your brain, it will kill you. Okay? So amputation is a drastic measure but it's necessary to save a life in many cases. And this is where Jesus is going with this. He's talking about something that's super drastic. And, and, and you've heard the phrase before, drastic times call for drastic measures. You know, when you're in a war situation, things are very different. That's why a lot of people have a trouble with the book of Deuteronomy. We just went through the book of Deuteronomy. And it commands a lot of strange things. But they were living in war times, okay? And so in war times, you know, some of you are old enough to remember, maybe your parents lived through World War II. Remember rationing? Like, you can only buy so much gas, you can only buy so much sugar, you can only buy, everything was rational. Like, wow, that's crazy. People live like that? Well, yeah, they did during wartime. And Jesus is talking about drastic times here, and maybe you're in a drastic situation. He says, if your hand causes you to sin. Now, as we'll see here in a second, this is what's called hyperbolic metaphor. Okay? You ever said to someone, hey, I've told you a million times, don't do that. Literally, did you say a million times? No. We all say things like that that are hyperbolic. That, that are, and they are just a metaphor. You know, you say, you're, you're such a pig. Well, I don't literally mean that you oink and have a curly tail. I'm saying you're rude or whatever, you know. There's times, it's normal in English speech to use metaphors and use hyperbole. And Jesus did it all the time. The problem is people go from one extreme to another. See, is Jesus being literal here? This makes no sense. Or they say everything Jesus says is a metaphor. Now, if you tell your kids, I've told you a million times, they should know that you're exaggerating there, right? But if you say, hey, only do that thing twice, otherwise you'll break it. Are you being literal or are you exaggerating? You're being literal. So there's a time to take someone literally, and there's a time to take it and realize that they're exaggerating metaphor. And we know the difference. We're not stupid. Even kindergartners can figure out the difference between hyperbole and literalness. But when it comes to the Bible, people are like, oh, Jesus, he doesn't make any sense in here. Or are you going to take everything he says literally? No. Read what he said, and you decide. Okay? He uses a normal context. Jesus is not asking people to walk around with one hand. He's not asking them to do that. He's using hyperbole. He says, he's using a point here that if something is going to cause you to go to hell, you need to cause whatever, you need to cut whatever that is out of your life. That's what he's talking about. Now, notice if you see a pattern here. He talks about your hand, your foot, okay, and he uses the same language for each one, and for your eye. And he, and he uses the phrase the kingdom of God, which is another a synonym for heaven, right? So, he is talking to people here who have not been saved yet. Because obviously if you've been saved, there's no chance of you going to hell. He's talking to people who are lost saying, hey, do you want to go to heaven or hell? And if you've got something in your life that is keeping you from trusting me as the Savior, you need to cut that thing out. Because it'd be better you cut that out in this life and go to heaven. And notice it doesn't say you'll be in heaven with one hand, one eye, or one foot. It says you'll enter in there. But again, it's a metaphor, so we don't want to do too many parallels here. But he also talks literally about hell. And, and a lot of people have a hard time with this. Some people have asked, you know, do you believe that hell is literal? I, I personally do. But if it's not, 
it the metaphor represents something that's far worse than burning fire. Okay? I do believe that people will spend eternity in torment getting what they asked for and as God stay out of my life. But if you want God to stay out of your life, that means he will take away the sunshine that he created. He will take away the breath in your lungs. He will take away his presence. He will take away everything he's given you and you will be alone for all eternity in torment, away from everything that is good, experiencing nothing but your own evil. And that's the choice that people make. Now, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I do, Jesus, for every one time he talked about heaven, he mentioned hell five times. Now, if you don't like the idea of a, of a literal burning hell, you have a problem not with me, but with Jesus. Now, let's look at why Jesus would do that. It's because if the building's on fire, someone who runs around screaming, hey, get out, get out, the building's on fire. Or you say, oh, well, you're just trying to scare me. You're just a right-wing fanatic. You're just crazy. Or would you say that person really loves me, that they're risking their own life running through the building trying to get people out? Okay? We would give them the benefit of the doubt, and we would say that they actually do love people. So let's make some observations about your hand, your feet, your foot, your eye. First of all, it's a hyperbolic metaphor. Okay? Jesus is not recommending people go do it. There were actually Christians in the first century, few of them in a cult, that actually were cutting off hands and doing things like that, saying that they were more loyal followers of Jesus, and that's not what Jesus intended at all. And it says, if you cause you to sin... We already discovered that word means contribute to. Your hand came like, oh man, look what my hand is doing to me, you know, as I'm stepping on something. Guitar here. Okay, so your hand is not, doesn't have a mind of its own. Okay, it's saying if it's contributing to that. The third observation is this is for lost people because it's, what's at stake is heaven and hell. Now, there is an application for saved people here, for followers of Christ. We'll get to that later. And number four, he's teaching the principles what it takes to be saved, what to repent of. Now, I want you to know something else here. It says your hand, your foot, your eye, singular. It didn't say your hands, your feet, your eyes. But watch this something here. Your hand represents what you do. Is there something you're doing in your life right now that's like, I'd rather do this with my hands than be a follower of Jesus? Jesus says, whatever that is you're doing with your hands, you need to cut that out and follow me. And see, what people want is they, they want to hold on to their sin and get Jesus at the same time, and you can't do that. Now, does that mean you stop sinning immediately? No. It means you're willing to say, hey, whatever this is, with this relationship, this habit, this substance, whatever it is, I'm willing to let it go. And Lord, with your help, I want to follow you and turn my back on all this. So your, the hand, I believe, is referring to what you do. Your foot would refer to where you go where you go. There are places you can go that just by being there, it's sin. It's wrong, okay? Um, if, if I, as your pastor, walked into a strip club, and I said, well, I didn't spend any money. I didn't drink anything. I walked around with my eyes like this. Would you still think I'm being a good example as your pastor? No. And, and would you be, ladies, would you be happy if your husband was there? No. I was, I, it's emphatic no. There you go. Good for you. Okay. So there are places you can go. There's places we as believers, we should not go. And I'm sorry if you have a fifth grader asking what a strip club, I'll let you explain that later. Okay. So um, your eye is referring to what you see, obviously. And there's a lot of things you see that you don't need to be seeing, right? Man, do you realize that our whole world and our teenagers are walking around with access to pornography in their pockets at any given moment. 
And if you don't have filters on your kids' phones, man, you need to wake up. And if you don't have filters on your husband's phones, you need to wake up. And unfortunately, there's a growing number of women that have this same problem. Man, you can see the worst stuff in the world right here on your fingertips. What used to be you had to go to an adult bookstore to buy or to rent a DVD or go buy some magazines, everybody has it right here. It, it, it's just sad. It's, we live in a very dangerous world. You need to be just like we sung in Sunday school when we were little. Be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little eyes what you see because the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful little eyes what you see. That's not just for kids. That's not just for all these teenagers over here. I don't care if you're 16 or 67. You need to be careful what you see because it, you can't unsee it. How many of you are old enough to remember the movie Friday the 13th? I saw that when I was like 13 or 14 years old. When they never enforced R-rated movie. Remember, what does R-rated movie mean? Nobody's 17 under without a parent. Me and my friends all just walked in. We bought the ticket. We all just walked in. And there are images from that movie I wish, I wish I could just erase. I still see them today. I still see people just being stabbed right through the back. People's throats being slit. Sexual scenes I wish I'd never, ever seen. And I'm 58 years old now, and I still can't get them on my head. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. We need to be careful. Um, now, I want you to know something else. Everything he mentioned comes in pairs. Feet, hand, eyes. But notice he only said them in the singular. Okay, I'm jumping ahead here. Is there, a, is there a pair that you think is important that he didn't mention? Ears, yeah. We need to be careful we listen to. I think that's not saying Jesus missed something. It's just saying you get the drift, right? I think he can keep going on with a lot of pairs. You know, be careful what your lungs take in. They're in a pair, right? Um, what are some non-pairs? Your mouth, yes, good one. Your mind, your heart, okay? And again, he's focusing on the external, but we'll talk about that why here in just a little bit. What pair is missing? You, you already said the ears were missing, but again, I don't think he's trying to make an exhaustive list. And then also, all of them are named in the singular. And man, I was praying and reading about this, and let me just tell you, what I'm about to share with you is my opinion. Say it's his opinion. Okay? So you can take this where you want. I'm not going to say this is, God told me this is what it means, okay? But I believe that he said hand, not hands, feet, not or foot, not feet, okay? Eye, not eyes, for a purpose. Because there is part of you that wants to do something, and there's part of you that's like, don't do it. Like, yeah, but I really want it. Don't do it. But I really want it. Okay? And even lost people are conflicted. They're hearing the gospel, and they're hearing, you need to trust Christ your Savior, make him the Lord of your life, become a follower of Jesus. And like, yeah, but if I, if I follow Jesus, I can't do this. And if I follow Jesus, I can't watch this. And, and I don't want to give up this stuff. I'm so torn. And I think he's using one and not both because he knows that part of you is struggling with it. That's why Jesus says, you know, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Okay? He's saying, you know, you may be conflicted. Maybe you want to give out a show, but don't do it for those reasons. Okay? Don't let the part of you who wants to do it for show, you know, override the part of you that wants to do it from a good heart. So I think that's my theory on why he did it that way, because there's people that are torn. And you, you may be here this morning, and you've never committed your life as a Christian. You've never made a public, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, because you're torn. You got a hand that wants to and a hand that doesn't. 
you got an eye that can see it and an eye that doesn't want to see it. you got feet that want to go in the right direction and you got a foot that wants to go in, in a different direction. And I think that's why Jesus pre- prevented, presented it in the singular. And again, a reminder here, it's, it's directed to the lost, but there is an application for saved. He's saying heaven and hell are at stake right now. Seriously, you, you have no idea how much longer you will live. I've done a lot of funerals. But I can tell you, numerically speaking, I've done more funerals for people under 40 than for over 40. One of the first funerals I did was I was a youth pastor on the north side of Houston. And there was a kid that went to Aldine High School. And he had a truck. And he had it all pimped out. And he had it down on the ground. Had ground effects on it. He had big bass speakers in the back of it. And he had an awesome sound system. And one day, one of his friends asked him for a ride to school. And he went, came by his house, and he, he got in the car, and as they're on the way to school, the friend pulls out a gun and says, hey, turn right. And he drive, has him drive out to the woods. He walks him out into the woods, shoots him in the back of the head to steal his stereo system. That, that kid was only 17 years old. I've done a lot of funerals for teenagers, for little kids who've died of leukemia, for moms who died of breast cancer at age 30, I've done a lot of funerals for young people. If you're young here this morning, don't tell yourself, I'll trust Christ later. I'm going to live it up now. You may not have that choice. A drunk driver may T-bone your car at the next intersection on your way out of here. Don't let one of your hands tell you what your other hand's going to do. Don't what you think you see with one eye clearly blind you in the other eye to, to accepting Christ. So what this also does it identifies your idols. We just read that scripture. Miss Karen read that scripture about all the other gods. are not real gods. They're just wooden idols. They're just idols made of gold and silver. I was at the donut shop the other day buying... Have you noticed donuts cost an arm and a leg? No, no pun intended. I bought a dozen donuts. $9.34. I remember donuts used to be a few bucks. I'm like, man, that's the last time I buy donuts. Anyway, but as I'm paying, right there in front of me, made out of gold, is a, an idol. These people were Buddhists or something like that. And they've got money all over it. And they've got, they got a candle burning next to it. And don't think the idols are not real, okay? I mean, people have idols. But you and I may think we're, not, we're more sophisticated than have a little cat with its paw doing this or whatever. You, we think we're more sophisticated. But let me tell you something. Some of you, your idol is your car. You're driving your tithe. Some of you are, your, your, your house is your idol. Your career and your success is your idol. You're looking to this to fill you up on the inside. And it does for a a little while, but not for good. You may be looking for a relationship or whatever. And can you imagine if you would say, oh, I would become a Christian, but, you know, my boyfriend's not interested in that. And would you, you, rather than, you may spend years with him, but you want to have that instead of eternity with Jesus? And, and, of course, Jesus puts it the other way. You'd rather spend eternity in hell where the, the, the fire is not quenched? You know, what, whatever you're not willing to let go of, that's your idol. It may be your own pleasure. It may be your own amusement. It may be your own career, whatever it may be. Are you really willing to let go of it? There's a whole lot of people who have never really trusted Christ. They say, oh, yeah, they said the prayer. They went through the motion. They got saved at VBS. But they've never let go of any of these idols. They're just religious. And I'm afraid that may be many in this room this morning. First Thessalonians 1.9 says, 
talks about how the Thessalonians got saved. He said, you turn to God from idols. We're not saying you have to do two things from, to get saved. You got to do one. Tammy and I want to do this experiment. We've done it a couple times, but we want to do it again. We have a dog named Duchess, and we have this in-house debate as to who Duchess loves more. Tammy says that Duchess only loves me more because I feed her and I walk her. And, uh, but she says, but if she really wants some sweetness, she'll come to me. So one time, we actually put Duchess in the middle of the room, and we were on the other end, and we're like, okay, one, two, three, go. Come here, Duchess. Come here, Duchess. Come here, Duchess. I won't tell you who she came to. But anyway. <laughs> I won't tell you who she came to. But anyway. <laughs> All right. So, but you know what? For Duchess to go to me and not to go to Tammy, she just made one motion. She, by coming to me, she turned her back on Tammy. And when you, when you repent, when you're coming to God, you're turning your back on all the others. You can't say, hey, come all this junk, come with me as I come to Jesus. You're, it's one motion, repent. The military word is about face. And that's what the literal Greek word meant. It meant doing about face. When a, a Greek soldier would say repent, all the army did a, a, a 180 and turned the other direction. And you have to turn from these things. I'm not saying you have to clean up your life in order to be saved. That's not what I'm talking about. Imagine if someone is sick at home and their lungs are filling up with fluid and they're coughing and their heart, they're having trouble breathing. They're developing pneumonia. And they're like, no, but I, I'll get better. I'll keep taking emergency. I'll keep drinking this. And someone said that this herb will help me. And I got the ventilator going on. And I got a, I'm puffing. And they're getting worse and worse and worse. When they finally admit, you know what, I'm sick. I'm going to the doctor. That's when they'll get better. Now, they don't have to clear up their lungs before they go see the doctor. They have to admit they're sick and take that sickness to the doctor so that he can do something about it. And that's what it takes to be saved. Jesus didn't say, well, when you're willing to quit cussing and smoking and drinking and all that stuff, then you can come to me. Jesus said, no, you bring all that junk to me. I'll help you get rid of it. But are you willing to? Are you willing to? Revelation 9.20. This is talk about a scary time. When you and I are gone and we're taken up, but those who are left behind are suffering, it says that the rest of mankind, talking about after the plagues, that were not killed by these plagues, they still did not repent. Millions of Christians have disappeared during the rapture, and God's wrath is being poured out on planet Earth, and people see all these plagues being poured out by angels flying through the sky, and the tribulation is happening, and it says they still would not repent of the deeds of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. You see, people say, well, you know, people go to hell, you know, that's not because they want to. God sends them there. These people are choosing. They're like, no, God, I'm not going to repent. I don't care how many plagues you pour down on me. I don't care if fire and brimstone come down from heaven and demons and all that stuff. Like, I will not repent. And there's people who are like that and they're getting what they deserve. And that's you and I before the grace of God, before I sound too judgmental, okay? If we had not heard the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would be hardened like that. And sometimes as Christians, we still are. Acts chapter 3, verse 18 says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, all the prophets are about Jesus, right? That his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Every prophecy about Jesus, Jesus fulfilled. And then he says, Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. You see, in America, we have an American gospel that it's just easy to become a Christian. Anybody can do it. Just say this prayer or fill out this card and boom, you're on your way. And they don't preach anything about repentance. 
to how you need to turn from sin. Again, I'm not saying quit all those things. You have to say, I am not going to put my hope and joy and pleasure in all these things. I wish I didn't have these. Jesus, please help me. And then Jesus does. Do you understand? So please don't think I'm teaching something like, you got to do all this stuff first to get saved. Get saved and Jesus will take care of the stuff. But are you willing to let go of the stuff? How does a saved person now apply this passage? He's telling lost people, hey, don't hold on to your relationship with somebody and go to hell. Cut that relationship off. Don't hold on to that addiction. Cut that addiction off if, and, go, and go to heaven. Trust me as Savior. So, but let's apply it to a now saved person. So your hand, what do you do? Is there something that you are doing in your life and maybe you think nobody knows, which that's usually not the case, but you think nobody knows or maybe everybody knows, but you're not willing to give up. That, number one, that ought to maybe make you question, are you really saved? But number two, if you're saved and you're struggling with what you do, ask God to help you to, to take that away. Is there, is there places that you're going that are questionable, that maybe would cause another unbeliever to stumble or get discouraged, or it's causing you to be tempted? That there's places that you're going that are putting you like where you're struggling with temptation and giving in? Is there things that you're seeing that you shouldn't be seeing I heard one Christian say that they were watching a movie that had a, a sexually explicit scene in it. And they said, well, we're not doing what they're doing. I'm like, you're still taking it into your eyes. And what did Jesus say? If you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've what? Committed adultery where? In your heart. We, we need to step up our standards on what we watch. Now, there was a generation ago that Christians just didn't go to the movies. I think that was an overreaction, okay? But they'd rather play it safe than sorry. But now we've gone the other way where we just watch everything and anything. We just think, oh, but it's okay. You know? And we expose our kids to things we shouldn't be exposing them to. Uh, Hernan Cortez, he was an explorer in 1519. And he came from Spain and came over to the New World to Mexico. And he came with several ships, 600 soldiers. And his goal was to conquer the Aztec Empire, which was a powerful empire. But with 600 men, of course, armed, against bows and arrows, he landed all the boats, got all the men on the shore, and said, we are here to win. We have no plan B. We are not going back if we start losing the battle. Burn the ships. And he burned a whole fleet of ships there in the Gulf of Mexico. He asked for 100% total commitment to the victory. Not justifying the killing of Native Americans, okay? So don't go there and don't send me emails about that. But what he did was, though, he drew a line of nothing but total commitment. Victory or nothing. And I think that's a good strategy. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, just like you'd put on a coat, and make, read this with me, make no provision for the flesh. How many of you get frustrated with your flesh? I get tired of this flesh. I'm like, I can't wait to go to heaven. Where I'm just constantly struggling with this. You know, don't eat that extra brownie. <laughs> don't watch that. Look away. Don't look at her. All that stuff I struggle with every day. I'm like, golly, is it ever going to end? Yes, when Jesus comes again. Until then, it's your spirit man against your flesh man. And it's this all day long, every day. There, there was a, an Indian that would travel around and put on dog fights. And a lot of the cowboys and the rustlers would come and they'd gamble and they'd bet on which dog's going to win. And one cowboy figured out He's got this rigged. 
I know he's got it rigged somehow because he always, the house always seems to win and he walks away with more money than he came. And he went to him afterwards and said, hey, I don't want my money back or whatever. I just want to know how you do it. How do you always know which dog is going to win? He said, three days prior to the fight, I stopped feeding the dog I want to lose and I feed the dog I want to win. Whichever dog you feed is going to win. You see, if you feed the flesh man with things you should not be seeing, things you should not be hearing, going places you should not be going, and all that, you're making the flesh man stronger and stronger. And then you, no wonder you lose the battle. But if you feed your spirit man with the word of God and with prayer and surrounding yourself with godly Christian people who encourage you and speak life into you, you're making your spiritual inner man stronger and stronger to where when your flesh comes up, but your flesh has been starving for weeks, you're like, get out of here. And you just say no, and you move on. That's what you need to do. If you're losing the battle, you're feeding the wrong dog. You need to win the battle by getting into the Word of God and prayer and drawing strength from the Holy Spirit of God. So here's some drastic things you can cut off. Instead of cutting off a hand, a foot, or gouging an eye, I have a better plan for you. You're majorly in debt? Cut up the cards. Stop telling yourself we'll pay it off next month. Just cut up the cards and stuff. Or if you're tempted to buy when you go in the store, don't have cash in your pocket. Just don't do it. If, if, if you're tempted to do things with cash, you should not be doing because you don't want to be traced. Don't carry cash. You need to put filters on your phone. I can't say it enough. You need to be careful of these things. You, if you need to get a dumb phone instead of a smartphone, do that. There's certain events and places that you just should not go, be going to. So everybody goes. If you're tempted to be there, then don't go. You know, if, if you're a recovering alcoholic you can, and you need to go to McDonald's where they don't serve alcohol, go to McDonald's, okay? Maybe you need to exercise more after that, but do something drastic. Also, you need to avoid people who tempt you. When I visit people in jail, and, they, and I say, man, what happened? Inevitably, it starts off with this sta statement. Well, there was this friend, and the rest is history. I, I could ask you to raise your hands. How many of you have been brought down by a friend? <laughs> I had a brother-in-law, successful businessman, making about $300,000 a year, just bought a big house in uh, Riverside, California, the suburb of L.A., was doing great killing it, making bonuses. And then one day after work, a friend says, hey, you ever snort a line of, crack, of heroin? Which one do you snort, the line? Cocaine, sorry. That's a, I, I don't do drugs, so hey, okay. <laughs> I'm looking at Amanda, man. I was like, what are you looking at me for? <laughs> Come on, Amanda, you know. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> you could snort them all if you wanted to. Yeah. I just, anyway, I won't go there. Um, so, this guy, they were, I think they were, at like a, they were on a business trip, and the guy started doing this, and he said, yeah, come on, just try it just once. After that, he was hooked. He would get a paycheck, go be gone for the weekend, blow the whole check, doing nothing but drugs, and wild living all weekend. And now, now last I heard, well, he's actually, he's dead now, but after that, he was actually on the streets, from making 300000 a year living in a super nice house in L.A. to living on the streets. Just because he tried it, how many times? Once. Be, be careful about that. Be careful about the people you hang out with. Cancel some channels. Man, we stopped a lot of these a long time ago, especially when they all started getting weird and endorsing things like that. You say, yeah, but there's so many good shows in there. Yeah, but how, if I was going to poison you, how would I do it? 
Would I say, here, here's a bowl of arsenic. Would you please try this, Matt's daughter? Would you please eat this? No. What I would do is I'd cook the best steak in the world, put a baked potato, some vegetables right there, grilled vegetables and all that stuff, and then I'd just sprinkle the arsenic on it. And I'd say, here you go. You see, the world throws out a lot of good stuff, but then they sprinkle the poison on it. Well, it's just a little bit. You know, it's been proven that movies that are family-friendly, Star Wars, Lion King, whatever, Megamind, all that stuff, they make billions more than the R-rated movies and the X-rated. But they keep pumping. Go to the theater, 14 shows, more than half of them rated R. Why? If the other ones make more money, why are they doing it? They have an agenda. They're sprinkling it in. And you can watch a story, and it's out of the blue. They drop the F-bomb. I'm like, what was that about? They're trying to dumb you down, to desensitize you, to make it worse, to where they, they corrupt you on that. And you say, Gary, that sounds really extreme. But let me just tell you, watch for the agenda. Follow the money trail. You could practice what's called the Billy Graham rule. How many of you know what the Billy Graham rule is? That you, you should not be alone with a member of the opposite sex. Just don't do it. Okay? I, I don't give rides to females in my car by myself. I, it, because, number one, there could be a false accusation. Number two, don't want to tempt her because I am pretty all swollen, you know, and so, and so I, I don't want to do all these things. So you, you practice that rule. You don't even avoid those situations. Me, the majority of people that I counsel who've gone into affairs did not plan on it. They say, the phrase they say it over and over again, it just happened. It just happened. Be careful. You maybe have a big issue with your mouth. Less said is better. If you sin with your mouth often, just zip it. When in doubt, don't. Just keep silent. Number three, uh, account, have accountability partners. That's why you need to be in a life group. That's why you need to be in a discipleship group where you can be with other people who can say, hey, how's it going with this temptation? Whatever it is you're dealing with. Because you know if you have to face someone tomorrow night and they're going to ask you and you don't want to lie, that could be motivation enough not to do what you would not want to do. There, it may be so extreme, because Jesus is talking about the hyperbolic metaphor, right? Cutting things off. You may have to change jobs. It was probably about 16 years ago, I was counseling a guy who was in an emotional affair with a woman at work. And I said, quit that job. He's like, what? I just got a raise. I'm making good money. I just got a house. And well, I said, quit that job. And he did. And he saved his marriage. And, and he got a better job. God took care of him. And I, I don't even care if you have to take a pay cut. If you can't handle the temptation, maybe, maybe you need to change jobs. I'm not saying it's for everybody, but maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to move all together to a new area. Manuel and Heather Munoz have said their testimony publicly. They were up in Dallas. They were with the wrong crowd doing drugs. And as much as they tried to quit and they tried to get away from it, they said, you know what? We need to just move to Houston because there's no drugs down there, right? <laughs> anyway, but no, they moved to Houston. They showed up at Lighthouse Church. They got saved. And now they're serving the Lord, you know? And you know what? Because they said, amen, good Lord. They said, let's move to a new area. And you may have to do that. May, now, who knows who these guys are? For king and country, right? Yeah. They're one of my favorite bands. They're awesome. And so they have a song called Burn the Ships. And it's based on that same story. And, and I want to read the lyrics here to you. I know you've heard this song. Many of you heard it dozens of times. But just let it soak in on what you're dealing with. You may be asking yourself, how did we get here? I'm supposed to be a Christian and I'm struggling with this. All cast away on a lonely shore. I can see in your eyes, dear, it's hard to take for a moment more. We've got to burn the ships, cut the ties, send a flare into the night, say a prayer, 
turn the tide, dry your tears, and wave goodbye. Step into a new day. We can rise up from the dust and walk away. We can dance upon our heartache. Yeah, so like a, light a match, leave the past, burn the ships, and don't look back. Don't let it arrest you. This is fear of falling again. And if you need a refuge, I will be right here for you until the end. So it's time to what? So burn the ships, he repeats, and he says, it's so long to shame. Walk through the sorrow, out of the fire into tomorrow. So flush the pills, face the fear, feel the wave disappear. We're coming in clear. We're born again. Our, our hopeful lungs can breathe again. Oh, we can breathe again and step into a new day. We can rise up from the dust and walk away. We can dance upon the heartache. So light a match, leave the past, burn the ships, and don't look back. That's what some of you need to do. There's some people, that, and all of us, struggling with things that we need to do something drastic. Cut off a hand, gouge out an eye, cut off a foot, and again, using the metaphor. But what he's talking about is do something drastic. Take drastic measures for drastic times. So he says this interesting verse. This is the one that's repeated three times. In verse 48, it's actually in all the manuscripts. So it appearing two other places is not a problem because it's actually in there. It's not like the Bible's saying something that shouldn't have been said. It says this really word, the worm. What's the worm about? Well, nearby, outside of, of Jerusalem, there was a big hill where everything was burned. You took uh, the dead bodies of prisoners out there. If they didn't, you didn't think they deserved a proper burial. You took all your trash out there. You took a bucket of fecal matter and dumped it out there. Everything nasty was out there, and it was on fire. And there was so much stuff there that the fire never stopped. And Jesus used that as a metaphor to describe hell. And what did live out there all the time was maggots. And maggots on the dead, on the dead animals, on the dead people, on all the trash, on all the garbage. And they, they, they learned to work around the fire, and the fire never went out. Gehenna burned 24-7. And Jesus uses that as a metaphor to describe the real eternal hell. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will knock on your door and say, Oh, the hell's not real. Jesus was referring to just a place called Gehenna. It's not literal. Well, take them to Revelation chapter 20, where it says the grave was cast into the lake of fire, which burns forever and ever, forever and ever. So he uses the metaphor, but he's using it to describe a, re a real eternal place. Isaiah 66, the very last verse of the biggest book in the Bible, he says this, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who, who have rebelled against me, for their worm which is referring to their innermost being. The, you ever heard someone, like one of the biggest insults you can say is somebody's call them a maggot, okay? Because it's basically saying you're just an evil little corrupt thing. And they would refer to evil people as the maggot, like their soul was like a maggot that just gnaws at them constantly. And they shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So Jesus is quoting from Isaiah here. And then he goes to another verse that's really unusual. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now he's brought it up to everybody. He's saying not just lost people have to make this choice, but everybody, lost and saved, you need, everybody's going to be through the judgment. Now, the way to find out what this weird phrase, salted with fire, means is we have to go back to the Old Testament. There were five types of offerings. Grain offerings, uh, peace offerings, sin offerings, burnt offerings, and then your annual offerings. 
But the grain offerings, they salted it first before they burned it. And a lot of animals were also salted before they burned them. And he says in Leviticus, it's the salt of my covenant that I will never leave you or forsake you. When you salted something, you were saying God keeps his promises. Salt's a preservative, right? We salt hams, we salt turkeys. We salt them so that they don't decay quickly. And salt preserves. And God says, I preserve you, Israel. I preserve you, Christian, with the salt of my covenant. Covenant, My promise to you is I will never leave you or forsake you. So everybody is promised that they have the covenant of God and will go through the judgment. You either go through the judgment covered by the grace of God and be cleansed, or you'll go through judgment, understanding the judgment of God through fire. So that's the, what that verse is talking about there. In fact, in Ezekiel, it talks about this. On the second day, you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering. And then a few verses later, he says, you shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall what? Sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering. So that's what Jesus is referring to. But everybody is going to go through the judgment with the, either under the covenant of God, which is if you're saved, you will be my, have my righteous and live for eternity, or you'll under the, cut the judgment of God and you'll be lost for eternity. So then he says, after this, salt is good. Amen. Salt is good. We like salt on our food. Salt per, does several things. It's a preservative, but it's also a flavoring. And he says, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? It's a really interesting phrase there. Because Jesus, another time when he was teaching in Matthew, he says, you are what? The salt of the earth. In other words, you're the preservative. Christians in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, you should be the one slowing down the rottenness of this world. You can't stop it. We know it's heading in the wrong direction, but we're slowing it down. But also, we should add flavor to life. We shouldn't be boring. We should be adding flavor to life. Have you noticed some of the best music in the world? Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, um, and just the list goes on. They were all Christians. You know, and some of the best entertainment in the world was made by Christians. And they, we add salt to this world. And then he says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. Let me, let's look at some observations about salt as we wrap it up here. First of all, salt, sodium chloride, is stable. Salt by itself never loses its saltiness. So what does Jesus mean? How can salt lose saltiness? It's when you mix it with other stuff. If I took salt and mixed it with dirt, would you want to eat it? No. Would it be as effective as a preservative? No. So salt loses its saltiness when it gets compromised. See where we're going here? You know, there's a lot of churches today that are all about packing out a crowd, you know, make, being seeker sensitive. Well, we can't preach too hard. You know, let's kind of leave out the blood of Jesus and let's just pack out the crowd with great music, great entertainment. And now we see the Hillsongs and the Bethels and all these mega churches, leaders falling after falling after falling. And what are they doing? They're being trampled on the feet of men. Oh yeah, I thought you were a Christian. You know, as we saw two Hillsong churches fall in one day because they're all about peeling the lost people instead of preaching the gospel to lost people. Instead of preaching the truth to, to believers and non-believers alike. So salt's a preservative. Uh, salt adds flavor. Salt only loses saltiness by being compromised. Another way you can compromise salt either by mixing it with dirt or by gypsum. Gypsum looks an awful lot like salt, but it, it compromises it. And when Christians compromise, they get trampled under feet of men. That's when lost people say, see, that's those Christians are all hypocrites. And let me just say this. If you've been turned off by Christianity because you've seen so much hypocrisy, 
I understand. I feel your pain. There is a lot of hypocrisy. But let me tell you, Jesus predicted that's the way it would be. He said that narrow is the way and only a few would find it. Broad's the way that leads to destruction. And there's a lot of people saying, oh, Jesus is here, Jesus is here, Jesus is here. And then we find out what hypocrites they are. Don't let that discourage you from finding the real truth. So how does a Christian act like the salt of the earth? Jesus says it in the end here. He says, have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. What did the disciples just get done doing? What were they arguing about on the way to where they were going? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. And Jesus says, you know what? The best way for you guys to have salt amongst yourselves is just be at peace with one another. Jesus said in another passage, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. And what did he say? If you have love one for another. The best testimony that Revolution Church can have to Brookside Village, to Pearland, to Houston, to Santa Fe, is to love one another. When they see how much you care and you genuinely love people for who they are, not for what they can do, that's when we, the people, we, we shine the light the brightest. Romans 14, 19 says, so let us pursue peace. Peace isn't something that just happens. You've got to chase it down. This word pursue is the same thing that Saul pursued David in the wilderness. He hunted him down. You've got to work for peace. You know, Revolution Church, but prior to this building, we were existing for eight years and we had no major problems because we pursued peace. We chose to love one another and disagree over little things. It, it, it wasn't always easy, but it's something we always worked for and strive for. It says, so where the worm dies not, does not die and the fire is not quenched. You know what this worm also refers to? In Psalm 22, prophesying of what Jesus is praying on the cross, he says, I am a worm and not a man. I'm less than a man. Jesus left his throne in heaven to become born among the poorest of the poor, to be totally humiliated, to take upon the sin of the world and to become a worm for you and I despised by the people. He says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. There's a small worm. It's called the crimson grub. And the female, will, when it's time to give birth, will crawl up into a tree, wedge itself tightly in the bark, and, and clamp itself to either side, and literally burst open, giving birth to its young, and die in the process and spill its blood all over the tree. And that's what Jesus said, that's what I am. I am up here on the tree, the cross, and I am emptying my heart open to give life to all of you as I spill out my blood upon the cross. In Ephesians chapter one, it says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption, what? Through his blood. You see that, you look at that picture, that should have been Gary on that cross. That should have been you and I on that cross. But Jesus took our place. He who did no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would for just a moment. If you are never really made a genuine decision to trust Christ as your Savior, maybe you went through something in church but nothing has changed in your life, maybe it's time to get real. If you will realize that you're a sinner and you can do nothing to save yourself, you, you may have done some good, but it's totally outweighed by all of our evil, me included. But Jesus died to take all of it away. 
He was buried, and on the third day, he rose victorious, proving he's God and proving that he, he deserves to be the Lord of your life. Would you give it all to him? See, cutting off your hand and foot and your eye, it's really all a picture of just cutting off all of us and saying, I, I give my life away. I want to live for you, Jesus. You could pray a prayer something like this, Lord Jesus, I'm such a sinner, but I know you took my place on the cross. Thank you for forgiving all my sins. I give my life to you right now. I make you the Lord of my life, and I pray that you'd make me different starting today from here forward. In Jesus' name, amen. You can text in your questions even now as we speak, or if you'd rather just raise your hand. Because if you've sent a text, I don't have any right now, so... Let's see. Maybe you'll send one soon. Patrick has a question. I'm ready for it. If you, if it's a... at the beginning of today's lesson, uh, when he says whoever would lead one of these little ones in sin, who is he addressing? Is he addressing saved people or lost people? Good question. He's referring to saved people. Now, in the immediate context, he was talking about kids because he picked one up and all that stuff, but then he broadened the application to all children of God. And he's talking about these disciples. Anybody who follows me, if you offend one of them, you'd be better off to have a millstone hung around your neck. And of course, a millstone was something that ground wheat, weighed about a ton, was moved by a mule. And it was funny, Jews were not seafaring people. They were scared to death of water. That's why you just see the disciples and they fall and like, oh, we're going to drown, we're going to drown. Like, we well, can't swim because they they, swimming was not a common thing and they weren't used to being around that. So yes, it was talking about believers in that situation. Good question. All right. Any other questions come in? No questions right now. Okay. Anybody else have a question? And you guys are like, all oh, or nothing. It's like there's 10 questions one Sunday. One on. Do you want to ask the other one from last week, Patrick? Sure. Okay. I, actually, I remember. Go ahead. Actually, let me do this. I think for time's sake, because I preached a little long today, we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to be dismissed in prayer. But here's what I'd like for you to do. I would like for the people in this section over here, I want you to gather around Pastor Stan and we're going to pray for him. If you don't know, he's got two broken bones in his back. And so he's in a lot of pain and all that. And so this section right here, I want you to circle up and pray for Miss Reba. She's in ICU and she's got a brain bleed and some other big issues going on. So I want you to do that. And then... Um, this section right here, David and Daisy, come on over here if you don't mind. Um, so David and Daisy, they've been a blessing to our church. They've been here serving the Lord. They, it, when, when, when our drummer had to move away, in the, in the next Sunday walks in David. And when we need another voice in here, they, but the Lord has moved them. They're going to be serving in another church here in the near future. And so this is actually our, our last Sunday with us. So this group right here, I want you to gather around them and pray f- for them. Would you do that? Okay. And then I think I had a fourth one. Oh, and then Manuel Urbina. Is he still here? So, if Melinda and Manuel, if you'd move over this section right here, Manuel has had brain surgery, and they're working on, I don't know, have they completely removed what you had there? So they're still working on trying to get the blood out of a pocket there from a brain injury. So... He's still as sharp as ever, still thinking good. He just gets cloudy at times. So I want this section over here to pray for him. Would you do that? So this section over here, come on up here and gather around David and Daisy. And you all make a circle somewhere and gather around and pray for Miss Reva. And then this section over here, 
if you would pray for Pastor Byers. And then um, after you're done praying, you can just quietly be dismissed and fellowship out in the lobby, okay? God bless you.